We are continuing our journey through the book of Acts, where we are learning to be the church. And so this morning we come to chapter 13. I don't know if you, when you woke up this morning, if you thought today we're going to get to chapter 13. I suspect you probably didn't think about that. But we are today in chapter 13, and something significant happens in chapter 13. In fact, most commentators and scholars uh, will tell you that there's a break in the book of Acts. Uh, uh, there's a uh, an event that happens. There's a, a shift in the storyline, and it happens between Acts chapter 12 and Acts chapter 13, because in the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts, we, we discover how Jesus leaves and, and departs. He ascends to heaven, and he promises the Holy Spirit, and, and that which we celebrate today, the Holy Spirit comes just as he promised and he comes and he, he begins to work in the hearts and minds of people. And people are convicted through early preaching and they, they confess, they are baptized and the church grows. And then there is persecution and the church grows more. And there's more persecution and the church grows. And, and all of this happens around Jerusalem. And it happens largely with Peter and, and his work. But then in chapter 13, we begin to see something happen. The message, the good news of Jesus begins to go. It begins to go in Gentile territory. We've talked about Gentiles, right? How unless we are Jewish, then everybody else is Gentile. I think that's pretty much everybody here, we decided. But this thing that is promised in Acts chapter 1 begins to unfold, and you remember that. We just read it, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria into the ends of the earth. This is the vision, the vision for the church. Uh, the second half of the book of Acts tells the story of the Holy Spirit's work through Paul and Barnabas and others who gave witness to the gospel as it began to spread through the ends of the earth. To be a witness. God is inviting people into his kingdom from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, from everywhere. And that's what we see in Acts chapter 13. So if you have your Bible, I encourage you to follow along. Um, the words will be behind me, uh, and you can follow along there. Um, it is Acts chapter 13, and just the first three verses. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Hmm. It's a short passage, but a window into what was happening in the midst of worship. 
That's, that's exactly what we see in this passage. The church was gathered together for worship in prayer. I, I imagine that it must have been a powerful occasion. Acts tells us that there were prophets and teachers. So it's quite a list, actually. Barnabas and Simeon and Lucius and Manny and a friend of Herod the Tatriarch and Saul. I mean, these were gifted leaders of the church. They were from different cultures, by the way. So already here we have a picture of a multicultural church from different nations, different uh, families, different traditions. And, and so it really was multicultural worship. I suspect that there was probably dancing. Yes, I like dancing. And, and stillness, probably even, maybe even, or maybe not even at the same time. There was room for reflection and understanding and prayer and expectation. And to top it all off, the Holy Spirit was there. In fact, that's appropriate to acknowledge that today. It was a powerful moment of worship. Have you ever wanted a Sunday morning like that? A powerful moment of worship. I suspect that you do. I suspect that you came with that hope in mind because I know that today, in this very moment, and in the hours to come, thousands and millions of people all around the world will go to a church community and they will expect something. Now, some of them will go to communities that gather in ornate sanctuaries in cities. Uh, some of them will go to church buildings in the countryside. Some of them will go to rented facilities. <laughs> go figure. Some of them will have loud worship services. And some of them will be very contemplative. Some of them will be reflective. Some of them will be active. We could go on and on and list the different ways, the different kinds of worship that people experience in worship that they expect. But through it all, through all the millions of people who gather in community this day, there it can be said that people fall into two categories. Those who expect God to do something to move, to shape their lives, and then those who don't really expect much. One of two categories. Robert Wilson, who was a professor of Hebrew at Princeton Theological Seminary more than 100 years ago, said that there are two kinds of people in the church, little godders and big godders. The godders not really a word. He made it up. Little godders and big godders. Some people have a little bitty God, a little bitty God, and he doesn't do much. He doesn't provide resources. He doesn't work miracles. He, they don't talk about him much because he doesn't do much. He's a little bitty God, and they don't trust this little bitty God because he doesn't do much. They're little godders. But then there are people who are big godders, and for them, God is big. God is always doing miracles. God is always at work in powerful ways. There's always something to talk about because God is always doing something. And these people are big godders because they have a great God. So let me ask you the question. Do you have a little God or do you have a big God this morning? Do you expect that God will do something in your life today? Are your eyes open? 
Are you looking? Are you searching? And by the way, in verse 2 of this passage, we read that they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. We don't talk a lot about fasting today, and someone already thought, said, Pastor, it's not fair to talk about fasting when it's potluck dinner and we can smell the food. <laughs> so maybe it's actually very appropriate because fasting is really a form of intense prayer, and when you can smell the food, it's even more intense. Throughout the Bible, there are many references to fasting. And fasting basically is abstaining from food for spiritual purposes. It's not the same as a hunger strike, and it is definitely not a diet. Fasting is refraining from food, abstaining from food, to focus on our dependency on God. It's a physical hunger. If you've ever done it, you know what I'm talking about. It's a physical hunger that reflects a spiritual hunger at work in our lives. It is an opportunity to connect the physical with the spiritual. It is a way that our hearts cry out for God's presence, for God's work, asking that God alone will fill our lives with what we really need. The point is, does your prayer and worship cry out for God's presence? Do you expect God to do something in your life today? Because if you do, the Holy Spirit shows up. You might even find yourself called. Because that's what happens in this passage. The people are crying out to God in worship and prayer, serious prayer, fasting, and the Holy Spirit shows up and calls. The Holy Spirit says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. The calling here is significant. In fact, the, the very word call, it, it's kind of a religious word. We, we, you don't really hear it too much on the street these days in, in context unless you're getting a phone call. And that's completely different. But, but the call is, is basically a religious word. And sometimes, unfortunately, and usually, it's reserved for those in vocational ministry, like a pastor or a missionary. Unfortunately, because it's, it's not true, because all Christians are called. All Christians are called. It's just not all Christians feel called. But the truth is, everyone in Christianity is called to come to Christ. And in Christ, we are called on mission. Do you feel called this morning? I hope you do. Because the Bible says that every Christian has been called. There's this passage that everybody knows and loves. It's from Romans 8, 28. And it says, And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Usually when we talk about this verse, we, we always like to focus on the first part, that God is always doing good. In all things, God works for the good. And I like that too, because it doesn't say in some things God works for the good, or only in good things God works for the good. No, no, no. All things. That means the bad things. That means the horrible things, the unpredictable things, the things we worry about. God is at work for the good. And here's the important part of those who are called, those who love him. You see, every believer in Christian, 
in every Christian is someone who is called. It happens when God comes to you and he invites you into a personal relationship. He invites you to turn away from sin and turn toward abundant and eternal life with him. He invites you to to give up a stony old heart that doesn't beat in exchange for a heart that beats with love and compassion and and hope. It, It happens when God comes to you and he invites you to step out on faith and to live on mission. He invites you to a different kind of work, a different kind of relationship, a different goal, a different purpose in life. There's no limit to the kind of call God can give in your life. So what does it mean to be called? Are you called this morning? You see, every new life begins with a call. I don't know if you've been around someone who maybe they work for a hospital or the, uh, they're working in an emergency room, some kind of emergency team, maybe a firefighter, and they use a phrase, I'm on call. And, and if they use that phrase, what that means is that they have to be in communication with an office, a, a boss, a, somebody uh, at the hospital or in the, the place they work. And, and if there's an emergency, if there's a need, then they are called. And, and when they, they are called, what do they do? They drop what they're doing and they respond. They, they go, they help, they run away, they, they change direction as quickly as possible, and, and they are responding to the call. Well, it, it is so true that when we are called, what it means is it means that your ordinary life is disturbed. Things can no longer just go as if they were always the same. I shared with the the English Bible study uh, this week about an occasion I had when I was in seminary. In in seminary, we were were training, of course, for, for ministry, and one of the classes we had to take was chaplaincy class. And and what that meant is you actually had to spend time in the hospitals. And you would be, uh, you would go from room to room and you would pray with people and you would meet their needs. You would, you know, and we actually, we were taught how to do this. And each one of us um, had to serve in a particular hospital. And in those hospitals, you had to occasionally be on call. Well, that was a challenge for me because at the same time I was pastoring a church. And, you know, I thought, oh, it's going to be really difficult to be on call and still serve the church. But, you know, I ought to be able to figure it out. And so there was one weekend every semester that you took this class where you had to be on call. And there was really no way around it. And I thought, well, it's not going to be a big deal, right? I mean, one weekend, I mean, what are the chances that there's, there's anything I'm doing in a weekend that I just couldn't go and respond to an emergency at the hospital. So I'm thinking about my weekend. Well, what do I do on the weekend? Well, I got Sunday morning worship, but you know, the people, other people are there. They can respond. I mean, there's really only one moment in the entire weekend where it would be very difficult for me to reply to a call. And that would be the moment the preacher is preaching. And so what do you think happened? Well, I, I can tell you, that about 20 minutes into my sermon, uh, guess who got a call to respond to the hospital? So how do you handle that? Uh, well, the, the congregation was really happy with me that day because they got a very short sermon. 
because I, I had to go and respond to the call. You see, when a call comes in your life, one thing is for sure, your ordinary life will be disturbed. And if your life isn't disturbed, then it's really not a call. Think about that. If you are called, your ordinary life is disturbed. So first of all, it means that life is disturbed. And secondly, it requires a response. When you are called, you have to respond. You know, in that moment, I, I, I couldn't have said, well, I'm, I'm busy preaching right now. Whoever's dying at the hospital, they can wait. Uh, I couldn't have said that. I mean, I could have, but it had been really bad for me and the whole family and the whole kingdom. You can't not respond. I mean, you can. You have to respond. In fact, whenever you are presented with the presence of Jesus, you have to respond. Now, you can say, no, thank you, Jesus. I'm not going to follow you. You're a good teacher. You're a good prophet. I like your words, but I, I don't really believe you. You can say that. You can respond that way. You can deny who Jesus is. But one thing you cannot do is ignore the reality of Jesus. If Jesus comes, if he steps into your ordinary life, you absolutely must respond. The obvious way is to accept Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life, and to give your life to following him. There's no way you can ignore Jesus. You always have to respond. Acts chapter 13 tells us, Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Not only did Barnabas and Saul respond to the call, but the whole church responded to the work of the Holy Spirit. Everybody responded. They prayed. They fasted. They sent them off on mission. It's a beautiful story of responding to the call of God. It's also what happens in a pretty well-known passage from the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, there is a powerful story of how Isaiah responds. And I'm going to read that for you. It is Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongues from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. And that is the response of Isaiah. God is moving 
in powerful ways. Imagine the foundation shaking. I think if that were to happen today, I don't know if we would be accepting it or we'd be making a beeline, a, a, a fast escape from the building. Isaiah feels the conviction of sin. That's what the coal is all about. He feels an unworthiness to serve God. And what does God tell him? God says, you are worthy with forgiveness and grace. You can do this. And in the grace, in the forgiveness of that moment, he hears the call of God. I love this verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. That's what God's call will do to you. It will cause you to say things you didn't think you could say. Like, here I am, send me. Now, you really have to understand a little bit to what Isaiah is responding to. Because picture it this way, because I didn't read the whole chapter, but, but you got to know, God says something like this. He says, I have a job for a prophet. I need a prophet who will go to a group of people who will never hear, ever listen. I need a prophet who will go and spend the next 30 years preaching to people who will only despise and only ridicule him. I need a prophet who will go and take a job that will mean the rest of your life you'll be perceived as a professional failure. Your life will continually be in danger. You'll receive no support or affirmation of any sort. Do I have anybody who's willing to do that job? And Isaiah stands up immediately and says, here I am, send me. What? Why? Why would he do that? Wow. Why does he do that? Because he knows there is no greater joy in life than accepting God's call, no matter what it is. There's no greater joy. Everything else can be taken away, but if you are accepting the call of God's Mission in your life, you have found joy. Do you know that this morning? Do you know that? Can you hear the call of God? The call of God is the common experience and guiding imperative of every believer. What is your call? Maybe you're wrestling with it this morning. You might be wondering, is God speaking to me in this moment? In what path, I ask, is he calling you to go without letting your fears overwhelm you? Maybe God is calling you from one profession to another. That's what happened with the disciples. Jesus came and, and they, they left their nets and they followed. Matthew left his tax collecting business. They all left to be part of God's call. Maybe God is calling you out on a specific mission, in a specific way. That's what happened to Abraham. Abraham was, was called to a land that he didn't even know where. He was just called to go. Barnabas and Saul in this passage were sent out on mission. We didn't even know where yet. And I'm not sure what exactly is your call this morning, but I believe you are called. I believe it that God is calling you to something greater. Now, you may not have to, to get up and walk away from your job, but your job will change. I guarantee it. You may not have to walk away from your family, but your relationship with your family will change. I guarantee it. You may not have to, to die for your faith, but you will die to yourself every day. And here's the thing. 
it will all be worth it because there is such joy in following the call of God. Whatever it is, however God is calling you this morning, I hope you can say yes to God's call because there's no greater joy than accepting God's call for your life. Lord, we're thankful that even today, you are in the business of calling us. You are calling us first into a relationship with you to turn from, from sin and, and to self-dependence to, to dependence on you and forgiveness and grace. And secondly, Lord, you are calling us to mission. There is no Christian not called. You are calling us to specific ways to serve, to, to experience bun, abundant life. And Lord, we thank you and we praise you that even today you are still in the business of calling us. Help us to be bold and to say, yes, I will go here. I am. Send me. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.